So New Delhi, where I grew up, it's the capital city of India. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very tiny if we, if we talk about by the boundaries of New Delhi. And the population of New Delhi can be compared to the whole of Canada. Mm. So we are talking about a crazy high density. Yes. And specifically, if you are in that level of socioeconomic status, you look at life differently. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 134, The Undefinable Spirit, Simran Bamu, from India, with love. Welcome to another edition of The Undefinable Spirit here on the SIL podcast. Our special guest today is Simran Bamu. Now, Simran grew up in New Delhi, India, in a family of five, and spent the first 24 years of her life there. Growing up in a household below poverty line had its own challenges, how to make ends meet with no time to think about the future, along with social discrimination and exclusion, was a driving force for Simran to work hard to not only survive, but to gain acceptance. Simran's father was a soldier in the Indian Army and a bomb blast survivor. He had major injuries and was left physically handicapped as a result. His struggles and his journey to overcome them left a lasting impression on his daughter. Simran's mother had her own struggles in life, dealing with severe depression and episodes of schizophrenia. Back in the day, in India, mental health issues had a major stigma attached to them. Her experience of the ignorance of society around this issue had a lot to do with who she became later in life. Simran came to Canada in 2010 and received her citizenship in 2014, a turning point in her life. Another milestone was the decision in 2018 to get involved in politics, running for councillor in the town of Orangeville, Ontario. Professionally, Simran is a community leader and a business consultant. She is passionate about causes that promote sustainable development, gender equality, using technologies to enhance small business offerings, and accessibility, diversity, and inclusion. She actively participates in discussions on social, economic, and political issues and makes her voice heard over various platforms in Orangeville. Sermon likes to spend her free time with family, experimenting with cooking, fashion, and her newly found COVID hobby, and I can relate to this, gardening. Welcome to the podcast, Simran Bamu. Thank you so much. Hi, Simran. Hi. Now, Simran, you grew up in Delhi, India. I grew up in Canada, and for me, it's really hard to imagine what it would be like growing up in a country with a population of over a billion people. Can you talk about what that experience is like. Sure. You're taking me back to the days. (laughs) (laughs) So New Delhi, where I grew up, it's the capital city of India. Mm -hmm. And it is very, very tiny if we talk about by the boundaries of New Delhi. And the population of New Delhi can be compared to the whole of Canada. Mm. So we are talking about a crazy high density. Yes. And specifically, if you are in that level of socioeconomic status, you look at life differently, you experience different things than anybody else. 
So where we lived, where I grew up, where my father and mother built the house for us, it is still not very developed. We got drinking tap water, I think, three, four years ago in that area. Wow. So the struggle starts right there. Going to a school, you would not have schools in the 5, 10, 20 minutes walking distance. You would have to walk hours to reach school. Mm-hmm. And especially if your family can't afford to pay for the bus fare for the three of you. We were three siblings. After that, you come home, or you are really tired. You, want to, you don't have energy to even play, go outside and play. And especially because the notions that are attached to what is acceptable in the society, what is not acceptable in the society. Suddenly, people feel that because you have a troubled household, now you have become a product of that environment and you will somehow bring trouble to their children's life if you become friends with them. Mm. So that is such a taboo. You would not get invited to birthday parties as a kid. First, we would not have enough money to have our own birthday parties. So we would wait to taste a cake, a birthday cake. And because we were in that kind of an environment, our neighbors, our friends, all of those people belong to the similar socioeconomic background mostly. Mm. But some of us would wait for that occasion that once a year, at least we will get to try a spoonful of cake. And that was our experience, getting to eat something sweet. Right. We would wait for that. We would long for that. I did not get to eat chocolate or even try how chocolate tastes until I think I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Wow. We we're talking about that kind of an environment. We, we left home without eating anything in the morning. There was no concept of breakfast in our household. And I don't know how it was for everybody else because we didn't even talk about it. It was just routine. Right. We would wake up, we would get ready, go to school, and we would usually get noodles. Maggie was very popular back in the day in India, and uh, they would get ready in two minutes. So that would save us gasoline. My mom would have a manual gas stove that she would have to work really, really hard to get started in the morning. I remember the struggle. It would take two minutes to cook, so it will help us save the gasoline. And it doesn't need any spices to be put in it because it comes with a spice mix, those noodles. You just add water and use the same spice mix. So we used to take that for lunch. And then you have these lunch boxes that can't keep food warm when it is cold weather days. And then those noodles, I still remember, they will become so hard, they will solidify in one shape of the lunchbox. Mm -hmm. And I would be so embarrassed to even open that lunchbox because I would knew what is going to be inside it. So essentially what you're describing is what it's like to live in a family living below the poverty line. Yeah, and you don't have as many resources available there either, as much as you have in Canada. If you need help, there are government resources available to you. You have ODSP. You can get government funding for housing. You have these public schools who are at almost the same level as the private schools here, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You get a school bus without additional cost to it. You don't have school uniforms. Back in the day, even in the public schools there, we had school uniforms that we had to buy ourselves, that we had to pay for. And you would have to bus to the school and you would have to pay for the bus through your own pocket. Mm -hmm. So it causes a lot of barriers when you don't have those kind of assistance programs. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge gap in the private education versus the public education in India. Right. The challenges are obvious by what you just described. So my follow-up question to that is, how did that experience shape who you are today? I think when I look back, I feel it made me a very compassionate person. It made me realize that nobody's struggle is little or too big. And there is still way out of these situations. All you need is just one person who can pull you out of it. And I think uh, that made me a person who wants to be that resource for other people around me. 
today, if I see somebody in trouble, I try my best to do whatever I can. And I don't think it would have been possible for me to be this person that I am today if my journey wasn't like that. Who was you know, that person? Me, Sorry. Uh, for me, the person who left a lasting impression was uh, my teacher in grade eight, who was my teacher until grade 12. She was my English teacher. And I think she left a huge impression in my life, a very positive one. She would give me extra time. So I would give other students at home to make some money when I grew up a little older, when I was in grade five or six, I started tutoring other kids. So it wouldn't leave enough time because the school was so far away and we usually walked home, me and my sister. So it would take us two hours to come back. And then by the time it would be my time to start tutoring and then it would be night and I would speak. Right. So my teacher realized that and she would give me extra time during her own class, she would say, okay, that's all right if you want to complete your homework for other subjects as well. She was very kind, very compassionate. And she showed me that work could be a better place. She showed me different resources that were available within her reach. Mm -hmm. And she was available even after school for me. I would always reach out to her when I needed help of any kind. Yeah, that's really important when you're a child living under those kinds of circumstances to have those kinds of mentors. And speaking of mentors, our first mentors are parents. And your parents both went through very difficult physical and mental challenges in your childhood. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from your parents' struggles and how they handled them? Um, to say that I, I learned too much would not be the right statement, I think, for me. Mm -hmm. Because I do see that struggle from an outsider's point of view. I don't feel that I was involved anyhow in their struggle mm -hmm. in making it better or worse. It feels like I was just an audience. I was just watching things go by. Mm -hmm. um, and whenever life puts you in a situation like that, where you are thinking, now I'm a mother to a seven-year-old child. So whenever I'm put in a tough situation at home now in my life, somehow I feel that because my father had so many troubles of his own, my mother was going through a lot on her own and they still pulled through. So that gives me strength now, mm -hmm. looking back, that mm -hmm. how, how they managed it. They had such huge troubles ahead of them. They still managed everything. We still turned out okay. We were never put in harm's way. So yes. I, I try to feel that, you know, feel all of that pain. And I realize that what I am feeling right now in the moment isn't anything compared to that. So I can definitely get through it. So that sort of becomes a pushing force for me to continue to move on. Yeah, certainly not at your level, but I can relate to some of that, which keeps in line with the other things that we're talking about here. Obviously, living in abject poverty, there's a definite economic deficiency, which you're experiencing firsthand. And what was interesting is that you became an entrepreneur at the age of 12. What motivated you to start up a business that early in life, besides the obvious, which we're kind of covering right now? Um, I was a really bright student. And then when you don't have a product to sell to make money, you become the product, right? right. Um, I used to think, what can I do to make situation better? If I would say that to make situation better for the whole family, that would be a lie, a total lie. I think I was very selfish at the time. And I always used to just think that, you know, I would compare myself. I was a kid and I didn't have that outlook towards life beyond my own self, I think. So all I used to think was I would look at my friends and I would say, wow, they have a nice pencil case today. Look at somebody, look at the kind of lunchbox they have. And I would always get clothes passed on by my sister. So I would always get clothes handed down, shoes, school shoes handed down. 
And most times they were not even in the condition where I could literally walk in them or participate in any kind of sports activity. So that was such a motivation for me. Sometimes other students, parents would reach out to me when they would know that I hold the first position in class in all exams all the time. So they would reach out to me and they would ask me suggestions and tips. And one time this, I remember this parent saying that, would you tutor our kid? But then because the conditions were such at home, I suggested, can I come to your house and do it? And I was not expecting money in return. So I just went there and she paid me. She paid me 10 rupees. 10 Mm. rupees right now is equal to a dollar. And I helped that student out for, I think, a couple of hours. That's it. And that is when I realized as soon as I got hold of that money, I felt something inside me. I felt that hope that this is what I can do. You know, suddenly all these ideas started coming down and I said, you know what, this is what I want to do. Maybe this is my skill. This is what I can sell and I can make money. So that is how I started doing it. Further on, I got into a lot of business through that as well. So I would have at the end of the month, every month I would have around $15 or so at the end of each month. Then I would try to find students when I became like, you know, when you become a teenager Mm -hmm. and then all these girls have their Valentines and, you know, Indian society is not very open-minded and these girls would hide from their parents that they have a Valentine now. They want to buy a gift for somebody. So I would lend them money and I would say, okay, so I will give you 10 rupees, but whenever you return it after a week or two, will you give me 15 instead? Right. And getting money from home wasn't a problem for them, right? right? It wasn't a problem for them, but just the timing wasn't good for them. They couldn't say why they needed the money on the Valentine's week. Yeah. I was just going to say, so you, you learned a couple of things. One, you, you learned to appreciate your own value and your own skill. Mm-hmm. And you became mm-hmm. a very young money lender, essentially. <laughs> yes. And it developed those negotiation skills as well within me. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now, Sirman, I'm curious as to what made you decide to emigrate uh, in the first place and why Canada? It just happened to me. I did not really intend on this. So I was living my life and I had my graduation. I had started working. The situation, the financial situation in the family had improved. My dad wasn't around anymore. He had passed away. And I realized, like, I have done everything that I had planned according to my age and then what comes next. And I felt that that was the right age for me to get married. Mm. And what do I do now? Who do I get married to? Given the situation, we were very aloof. Uh, Usually what happens in India is your parents arrange the marriage for you. They find the boy for you, who you will get married to. But there wasn't anybody to do that for me. Mm. So I made a checklist. What is the education level that I want this person to have? Uh, what kind of income level this person I want to have. And all these different things, like what kind of temperament, what kind of behavior, what questions am I going to ask him? And I prepared all these questionnaires and I said, okay, what is the avenue I can go now to find a candidate? And then uh, back in the day in 2008 or nine, uh, these matrimonial websites were a big hit. Uh Um, Most of the boys technically were using them as dating sites just to find girls. But in the India, because the culture is so, you just can't say, I want to date you. So they would go on these sites and say, yeah, I'm looking for a girl to get married. They would meet you and they would say, okay, let's just hang out for a little bit and then see how things go. Mm. But I wasn't in it for that. And that's where I found my husband. He was in Canada, but he had plans to move back to India. And I wanted to be close to my family because I knew they would need my continuous support going forward in Mm. future as well, even after I got married or settled with somebody else. So I wanted to stay in India. My husband now, he found me online and 
he showed interest in my profile and we started talking and he met all those descriptions that I had in mind. He was very mature. He was very polite, very patient. He was well-educated. He was doing well for himself. He was a very responsible person. And then he ended up coming to India. He met me. We met a couple of times. And then I went back home. I shared with my sister, uh, my older sister, my mother. And I said, I think I really like this boy. And then he invited his family. He was very, very quick at it as well. He made a quick decision. Within 15 days, we were engaged. Wow. And then he convinced his family. I don't know how he convinced his family to agree on that. Because we had a huge gap between the kind of family backgrounds we had between the socioeconomic status that our families belonged to. Mm. And um, he made them agree to it. And they came and they wholeheartedly accepted me and welcomed me. And then he left for here and he came back again in six months and we got married. And then he sponsored me to come here, join him here. You may have said 15 days and we're here in the West thinking, who does that kind of thing? But you did something which takes many of us years to do is... You told each other exactly what you were looking for and who you were. And that eliminates a lot of time because most of us do that in relationships. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. so whether by circumstance or by choice, you eliminated that. And I'm assuming also that your little business ventures from early on taught you to do those things, part of organizing your thoughts and what you need to do and where you need to go. And then you send it out to someone who's doing exactly the same thing and voila, And you also circumvent that whole social thing because now you become each other's single most important thing. And even your families can take a secondary position in some sense because you both know what you want. Exactly. And also, I think it gave me, I didn't realize that in the time when it was happening, I didn't realize that this is what it would bring to my life. Hmm. But it brought a lot of people around me suddenly to give me a special place in their lives. Suddenly, because now I was getting married to somebody in Canada, everybody wanted to be friends with me. Mm. And all the relatives uh, started pouring in from everywhere that I had never met in ages and decades. And they wanted to be associated with me and my family. And they were showing all the care in the world. And they wanted to participate in my marriage arrangements. But I did not know this was going to happen. You are now part of a community. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... What would you say was the most difficult adjustment you had to make after arriving in Canada? And what was the easiest adjustment? The most difficult, I think, I went through a severe depression after I landed here. Because the social connections weren't the same. Because I was here by myself at first. And I was working there. I was making my own money. I was very independent financially. And, you know, when you have a life like that where... You were so focused on making money the whole time and you were not thinking about anything else. So I literally had no hobbies, nothing. Mm. All I knew how to do was to make money and that's it. So I landed here. I have no job. I don't have friends. I don't have anybody. If I'm sad, I have to wait for a number of hours to call back home and talk to somebody and share with them. And by the time, maybe my mood has changed by the time it is right, appropriate time for me to call. So what do I say, right? Yeah. And then, and, and, and my husband was the nine to five office job uh-huh. and uh, he didn't drive. We used to live in the Young and Eglinton area in mm-hmm. Toronto. Mm-hmm. It was very well connected to everything. But because of the way my life had been and the kind of job that I was in, I had never traveled in the public transit for the last six or seven years of my life. 
right. until I came here. And then I had so much of that ingrained in my head that only poor people use public transit. Mm. You uh-huh. know? So when I landed here and then I'm like, suddenly my husband is like, okay, if you want to go someplace, this is the route you can take. This will take you here. And then you take this bus. And I'm thinking, this is a poor man. Now I would have to struggle again in my life. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and and uh, I didn't know what else to think of it, right? So right. finally, and I started struggling that I badly need a job to be able to support this man and get him out of poverty so that we are able to afford a car, not knowing what his financials were. It shows you how uh, strong our roots and impacts of our life are. That with all your rationality, all your education, all your knowledge and so on, that you still fall back on those thoughts yeah. or, or choices that were based on largely on how you grew up. Exactly. Not only that, like your society defines your mentality as well, mm-hmm. right? The kind of people mm-hmm. that you are surrounded by. So when I landed here, I wasn't as open-minded as I am now. So I'll give you an example. I started working at this multinational organization very quickly after I arrived here. And I landed an interview. Most people said that networking, you have to do a lot of networking. It's all about who you know here and all those things. That It can take up to a year for you to find a job. And I didn't get discouraged. I Every morning, I would 9 to 5, I would sit online and I would apply for jobs. Mm. Every day, 9 to 5, I would apply for hundreds of jobs. And uh, finally, I landed a job within a few months of arriving here. And I started working. And part of my training batch was this gay man. And I did not know he was gay. And because the way the culture was in India, I didn't know what to think of it. Inside, I would just the feeling of the unknown. And you start to just stay away from them. Sort of like, I'm ashamed to say that, you know, sort of discriminate. Yes. I don't want to talk to this person. This person is lesser than what everybody else's or who we are, right? right? So I started sort of doing that. And fast forward, it took me some time. And I think my health as well helped me through it. And I got to a point very quickly within a few days or weeks that I became the bestest of friends with this guy. And we are still best friends yeah. up to this date. And um, when I called back home, I remember my struggles because this is the first friend that I had made here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling my family about him and they are telling me the same thing that I was thinking a few weeks ago. That, no, 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 you should not be talking to people mm. like that. They have a problem. This is a disease that they have. You stay away from them. They're going to make you gay as well if you talk to them. You know, it's like, it's like a transmittable disease. So, Biases like that, prejudice like that, it's so ingrained in you. It becomes a part of you. And to get rid of all of that while you are struggling to adjust in a new environment, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes very difficult. It takes a toll on you, especially when you are not that efficient at the language. You're not that efficient at the culture here, Mm -hmm. right? We went to somebody's wedding and this guy, and it was a very happy environment. And this guy hugged me and he gave me a kiss on my cheek. Mm -hmm. And I literally cried because I was so embarrassed because I came from such a conservative environment, right? right? And I felt violated. I said, you know, this guy came into my personal space and I almost feeling that as if I got raped. Right, and I felt right. really bad and I couldn't enjoy the wedding. It was all because of wow. my culture yes. that I brought along with me. So that's the most difficult. <laughs> what was the easiest thing to adjust to? The easiest thing for me was staying with my husband. I came with these huge expectations that now a typical Indian man, what would he want me to do? Hmm. He would want me to cook for him, clean for him, iron his clothes, be available for him at all times of the day, 
But then when I came here and this man, he did not expect anything from me. He was cooking for me. He was cleaning the house. And I was looking at him. I was experiencing something so totally different. Mm. But the first few weeks were filled with guilt that he does not trust me that I can cook good food for him or something <laughs> like that. The feeling of rejection that, you know, he hasn't accepted me as his wife. Uh-huh. Otherwise, why would he do his own things, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but this was the easiest part. He made life so easy for me as a new immigrant, as his newly wedded wife who had left the whole world for him and he made sure that life was super easy for me wow. every time be it he he moved closer to my workplace when i found a job so that i don't have to commute although it it involved him commuting my job my first job was in markham so from young and eglinton we moved to markham right away within days of me finding that job and he would commute all the way to downtown toronto for his job mm-hmm. blessed you're blessed clearly I am very blessed. That's wonderful. Now, you've been here for eight years. and Today is 18, so tomorrow it will be 10 full years. 10 full okay. years. And two years ago, you decided to run mm-hmm. uh, for a municipal councillor in Orangeville, just mm-hmm. missing out on being elected by not very much. What made you decide to enter politics at the local level, and what was that experience like for you? I think from the beginning, I've always been very interested in politics and anything, policy issues. Even back in the day when I was a child growing up, I would always wonder, who's getting these streets built around around our neighborhood? Why not these specific streets? Who's responsible for these different issues? Who do we reach out to? Mm. And I was always involved with those people in power. I would always be the one who would reach out to them. They would, they would laugh at me. They would mock at me back in the day because I was a kid. And because I came from that kind of a background, mm. they wouldn't take my request seriously. Mm-hmm. But here, when I realized I'm in a country that has all the freedom. I have equal rights to do anything. I am a citizen here, right? I'm a tax-paying, law-abiding citizen. Mm. And coincidentally, at the time, in 2017, I had recently quit my job and I had intended to stay home. And that is when I started taking more interest and doing more research on what is happening in the town, those issues. And I did a little bit of research on the people who were a part of our municipal council at the time and how things were. To be very blunt, uh, those discussions, those conversations weren't very civil. They were not sounding very professional. There wasn't much getting done. It felt like it was such a broken system in there. Nobody wanted to work with each other. It felt like that. And here I was with all this background behind me, and I felt I had the skills. I had the time. And I had the passion to make a change. Why not? Mm -hmm. So that is why I threw my hat in there and I went all in. Absolutely. And people accepted me wholeheartedly. I barely knew 25 people who could sign my endorsement forms for the nomination. I remember that day. And then at the end, within six months, there I was with 3,200 votes. Mm -hmm. And you shared that during the campaign, racism reared its ugly head. How did you feel during those moments and how did you deal with them? So if I would say this was the very first time in Canada that it had happened to me, that wouldn't be true. Because when I was working, it would happen every now and then as well. It would often happen at work as well through the colleagues. It would happen at work through clients. There would be several instances that it would happen, but it wasn't that direct. Mm. It wasn't that blunt when it happened back in the day. It was very subtle. There would be comments made that would infer something that would be racist, but they would not directly say anything derogatory to me. Mm -hmm. But then when this campaign started, and 
I don't know what I was thinking. I didn't think ahead of time that I was any different. My husband did warn me, though. He said, um, what are you doing? Do you think you're going to win? Hmm. And I said, I don't know if I'm going to win or not, but I'm definitely going to make a difference. Right. He was too afraid to tell me that you are different. So that is the reason why you're not going to win. You know, face these kind of challenges. He didn't want to share all these things with me directly, I feel. Mm-hmm. now. So I went out and I started in May itself. I remember uh, 2018, May, we still had provincial elections ahead of us. But because I barely knew people, I thought it would be very nice of me to go out and it will be an advantage to me if I start my campaign sooner than later before everybody else because I needed that extra time to know people and for people to get to know me. I started going around my own neighborhood and somebody who lives on my own street and I had my son with me, I remember. He was four and a half at the time and he was with me and this guy spent the whole 20 minutes talking to me about all the different issues, not only within Orangeville, not only within Ontario, he spoke to me about issues at international levels as well. And I felt, wow, what an amazing guy. And he says, I have one suggestion for you. And then I was, you know, very keen to hear that. And he said, why don't you go back to your country instead and try doing whatever you want to do here? You should go back there. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to say to him, how to respond to him. I was very baffled. This just happened so direct, so bluntly for the first time ever in my life. And here I was thinking, this is my country. I think I had forgotten everything that had happened to me when I submitted this nomination. In my head, I was equal. I was like everybody else. And then suddenly when he said that, everything came back to me. Mm. And I did not even respond to him. And I left with my son. Right. And answering those questions coming from him. What is your country, mom? Mm. And why did he say that? He said, are you not Canadian? And I said, I am Canadian. So what is your country? Is Canada not your country? I said, Canada is my country too. But because I look different from him, maybe that is why. And then all those follow-up questions, why he looks different, why we look different, and why do I look darker than you, he asked me. He's a a little darker than me, and he's like, why do I look darker? And then all these discussions about race, trying to explain to him, and then he's thinking that he's black, and then me explaining to him, no, about different shades what it symbolizes and where we are from geographically and all of those things. It wasn't very easy conversation. Now when I'm explaining it, maybe superficially, it it sounds like it was very specific, but it wasn't at the time. And then it just didn't end there. It continued to happen at several occasions to the point where I was very scared. I started thinking that maybe this is not the right approach. Maybe I shouldn't be going out. Maybe I should just first reach out to people through my social media and see if they are willing to meet me, and then I go and meet them. What you're talking about is changes, making changes. And Mm -hmm. Harry and I, just the last podcast we did was on that subject. And one of the intrinsic things about changes is you have to break tradition sometimes to make changes. And basically, that's what you're encountering. But you're encountering it on many levels. You're encountering it because of who you are, you're female, you're, you're a foreigner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just multiply those factors and basically you got it in full force. I don't know if, if you heard any of the rumors, but I did hear rumors and people would ask me when I would knock on their doors, people would ask me, I've heard that you don't know English while talking to me in English. People would say, are you even a citizen? Do you? But you don't live here, do you? Mm-hmm. We have heard that you only own a property here, but you live in Brampton. Mm-hmm. Or questions like asking me questions related to transit. 
So yeah. these people here they are. I'm not trying to look down or demean anybody, but here these people are who don't even know the difference between municipal issues and provincial issues and federal issues. They're asking me questions related to provincial issues, the transit between uh, Brampton and Orangeville. What mm-hmm. am I going to do about that? And of course, with me being progressive, I'm saying we need to improve it, right? right? We cannot afford to not have any transit between Brampton and Orangeville on weekends. We need to improve that. And here they are. Now they're telling me on my face, oh, so now you're going to open the doors for your relatives in Brampton and bring them all here. Mm-hmm. Another white candidate saying the same thing and getting applauded at it. There's a level... You've seen this in your own country. You've experienced it growing up. There's a level of ignorance that is pervasive, which unfortunately the biases and all the other problems that are brought up is part of our systemic problem, not just here, but in the world. We have a long way to go for sure Mm -hmm. on that front. Simran, Mm -hmm. you know, no interview these days can avoid, unfortunately, (laughs) can avoid the C word. And uh, mm-hmm. so I have to ask you, how have you and your family coped with this period of COVID-19? What are some of the challenges you've faced? Oh, other than, other than the usual having my son home 24-7, <laughs> you know, because he's the only child, it was very difficult. Yeah. Like he, boy, I realized he has energy. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping him occupied, keeping him entertained at all times is a huge task. And Sure something that most parents are not prepared for, Mm -hmm. to be able to have your child home for all these months, 24-7, where he, and he's very social. So that was a very big challenge for both of us, me as well as my husband. And then that was also the time for me to reflect back on my own childhood. And I had no toys. I had no no interaction with my parents for any playtime or anything like that. I never did any activities. So now here I am. Full grown up adult, I am a mother now, almost reaching my middle age. And mm-hmm. I don't know what to play with my son. Like what activities can I do with him? All I know, all I can do with him is, oh, let's do some math questions. Let me read you a story. And that's about it. I'm thinking, wow, I learned a lot as well through him. Mm-hmm. And I have two related questions while you're on the topic. What has been your attitude mm-hmm. towards COVID-19? And has it changed at all from the onset? And... And as far as the measures taken by governments to keep people safe, do you feel they've done too much or too little? To begin with what my perception and how we are taking as a family, COVID, we have taken it very seriously. So the day government declared the lockdown, the shutdown, Mm -hmm. we were all in. We created a whole strategy for what grocery items would we need. And when there was lack of certain grocery items, we did not go at length to get them or procure them from wherever. Mm -hmm. We stopped all our online orders as well because we did not want anything delivered through Amazon or any other avenues either. We took it that seriously. We wouldn't go grocery shopping every week that I used to go before. So my husband was the dedicated shopper for us, Mm -hmm. him being the most immune to everything around. So he would go and we would follow a very strict protocol. As soon as he would come home, he would throw his clothes in the wash. He would go take a shower. He wouldn't touch anything. I would not even touch the grocery items for the next 12 to 14 hours. And then I would put them in the refrigerator. So we were taking it very, very seriously. Okay. Now with the school system being open again, my son is going for in-school classes. Today is day three of him going. And we are following the similar protocols. And we've been very fortunate. He only has 
five children in his section in his grade right now. So the social distancing protocols are being followed. All the COVID protocols are being followed at the school as well to the T. The kids are getting extra spare masks every day to take to school with them. He has sanitizer from home as well as he's given the same in school as well. He knows he's aware of everything that he's supposed to and not supposed to do because of COVID. Right. And with the given increase in the number of cases that we have recently seen, I have started to contemplate a little again about switching to online mode for him, maybe. Before Harry uh, asks you the next question, it sounds to me like from the beginning of this podcast, right to what you just said, you're very equipped for political office. But, uh, <laughs> I hope I didn't steal any of Harry's question because, I mean, you've talked about everything here. You've talked about everything from compassion to COVID to economics to understanding people to understanding community. Who better to run for office? Exactly. exactly. Thank you so much. And it's difficult in some ways to talk about the future because it seems so uncertain during this period of COVID. And none of us is sure or able to plan much, it seems, into the future. But I'm wondering how you see your future unfolding in Orangeville. Will you run again for office? And what other activities will you be focused on? Um, I think politics is also these days become a number game. It's more about popularity versus what you bring to the table. It's Mm. more about who you know, how many people you know, how long you've been in town versus what you're going to do, what are your abilities, what Mm. expertise do you have. So I'm not too sure. Back in in 2018 when I had decided to run, it was a different dynamic altogether. It felt like a very pressing issue at the time because we had such a fragmented council Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But right now, the people who have been elected, I'm not going to discount myself. Definitely, I was so worth that position. I would have loved a position in the council. But I also realize the people who are sitting in the council at the moment, I am pretty happy with how they are working together as a team. The kind of decisions that they are making collaboratively. Of course, not all the decisions are not 100% according to what I would have done. But this is so much you can achieve together as different people coming and forming a council. Mm -hmm. So I think they're doing a good job. And if I think very strategically from it, from my perspective, win or lose perspective of it for the next election, I think when we talk about uh, name recognition and popularity, I think these people who are sitting in the council, they have gained as much name recognition as popularity as me. So I can definitely compete with them. Mm. But I think four years is too less of a time to make a real change. So I I think they should get another term together as a team. Well, I think we're going to use this podcast and distribute it to all the uh, residents of Orangeville. (laughs) You're going to find out that you're educated, that you know how to speak English. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That you live here. That you live here. Thank you. But I think the people who did not know me before know me now already. I am involved in so many different not-for-profit organizations. I sit on so many boards Mm. and and I make it a point, not just because of the popularity reason, but because I wanted to do all these things. Just because you don't win an election doesn't mean you don't care anymore. And you can't make a difference anymore. And really, Simran, as far as I'm concerned, you've really become a a well-respected voice in this community. Mm -hmm. And when you speak, people listen. And that's a wonderful thing. Thank you. Exactly. And before we close, other than thanking you, because I really enjoyed this conversation, especially hearing about your country. In fact, I have many more questions in my mind, which I'm not going to bring up right now because of time constraints. I'd be also interested to know, perhaps in another discussion, 
how you see uh, India in the next 10, 15 years, because so much talk is around China, but I see India as another major, major force to be dealt with once they get their infrastructure situation under more mm -hmm. control. You've got a very educated base as well, right? I mean, there are, yeah. there are more English-speaking people in India than there are in the United States. That's right. Facts yeah. that a lot of people don't know. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. What I wanted to ask exactly. you now... We can do how the British ruling influenced us so much that even now generations to come are going to be influenced by what changes they made to the Indian system. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Especially the education system and the language. Definitely. So yes. in closing here, I just wanted to ask you, if anyone wanted to contact you, is there any specific contact information that you want to give out? Any websites, any media sources, whatever? You're welcome to do it right now. I think um, if they Google my name, my contact information is available. Anything that goes during the campaign on the newspapers or on the Duffin uh, Board of Trade's website is always there. So always my contact information comes up there. But my Facebook page is the best way to approach me at the moment because I don't have a LinkedIn account right now that is active. I do not really officially hold my position with the BIA anymore, so I wouldn't recommend contacting me through there either. Okay. Um, but right now, I'm very active on Facebook. They can call me. They can email me. My email address is my first name, Simran, S-I-M-R-A-N, dot my last name, B-H-A-M-U, at gmail.com. They can reach out to me there. And usually, every time people reach out to me through any of the avenues, through either by calls or by email or by Facebook, I respond right away. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Simran. It's yep. been a pleasure talking to you. Mm -hmm. And we hope to talk to you again. Thank you, Peter and Harry, for providing me this platform. I really appreciate the time you guys took out for me today. Excellent. Uh, it was great for us, too. Thank you, Simran. It was a pleasure. Again, we'd love to hear your comments. Yeah, and an audio book could be a bonus if you contribute. Yeah, and we have a little button on our website. You just press and record. Exactly. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.